Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, Leon and I discuss what is on everybody's minds right now, which is the, the crisis in Ukraine, um, the war, what led up to it, what we think Putin's intentions are, um, and how it will change the world that we live in. Hello, Leon. Hello, Celeste. Welcome back to the United States. Thank you. Thank you. So you were in Europe last week when the um, when the war in Ukraine started. What was that like? It was, in a dark way, exhilarating to see what was happening in Europe. Uh, this is was certainly the I, I had this was certainly the most significant week in the history of Europe since 1989, and one felt it very vividly. Um, All sorts of things were happening that one never thought were possible. I mean, in the way of solidarity with Ukraine and solidarity with liberal democracy and, and with the idea that we must muscularly defend it. For example, uh, I had, it never occurred to me before last week that it was possible to morally offend the International Olympic Committee, but they have now, uh, you know, having just put on games in a country with concentration camps, they have all of a sudden decided to ban Russian and Belarusian athletes. Uh, it had never occurred to me that Swiss banks would ever give evidence of even the slightest ethical scruple. And all of a sudden, 11 billion Russian dollars, including Putin's and Lavrov's, were frozen, um, which probably uh, sends a chill into the heart of every oligarch uh, all around the world because it means that no loot is safe. Uh, And most astonishingly, Germany ended its post-war foreign policy last week when it announced that it was go- that it was going to raise its defense spending to two percent of GDP, um, which is something that the West has been wanting it to do for a long time, uh, and it's doing it, uh, which means that Putin did indeed accomplish his objective of revising the strategic order in Europe, but he accomplished it in exactly the opposite way than he intended to accomplish it. One had the feeling in Europe, in Paris, that Europe was truly not just uniting, but asserting itself. One had the sense of genuine outrage, of deep offense, uh, of a feeling of self-reliance, that uh, it hasn't had before, partly because it didn't have to have it, because it could rely on the United States more than it or anybody else ever can now. Um, and there was, and it was not recoiling from the prospect of 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 sending weapons and increasing defense budgets. Uh, something very very important happened. 
and uh, I'd never thought this. Uh, I would see this, and it was, it was in as I say in its dark way. It was, it was thrilling. So, does this mean that Europe interpreted Putin's behavior in Ukraine as an attack on Europe overall? I think yes. I think that um, Europe has a perfectly correct understanding of Putin. Um, and by the way, this understanding was available to anyone who was interested in obtaining it for a very long time. Uh, Putin has had three strategic objectives based on beliefs of his. One was to change the security picture in Europe. Uh, to interfere with Western Europe, to weaken it, to divide it, uh, and to do whatever he could to prevent Western weaponry from being deployed anywhere near his Western borders. The second one was to reverse the fall of the Soviet Union, to reverse 1989-91. And this has been coupled with an almost mystical belief in Russian greatness, at various times in his, in his presidency, in his autocracy, we should call it, um, he has been receptive to all sorts of bizarre mystical notions about Russia's specialness and its special way in history and so on. And the third objective was to prevent the emergence of liberal democracy, not only on his borders, which is obvious, but to to create Russia as the international, the global patron for authoritarianism and for the sort of autocracy that has been emerging in the, in, in, in the past decade. Um, all of these three objectives, as I say, were, were, were plain. If you studied Putin 20 years ago, you knew that this is what he believes and that sooner or later this would be his, quote, legacy. He would act on these things. Um, and the Europeans correctly understand that all three of these objectives uh, affect them directly. They strike at the heart not only of their security, but also of their public philosophy, of their reason for being as liberal democratic states. Okay, and where does Ukraine come into it then? Ukraine was Putin's worst nightmare. Ukraine not only aspires to be a liberal democracy, but a great deal of it already is a liberal democracy. Um, I remember when I went to Kiev in nineteen in, in, in twenty fourteen. I, on the flight there, I thought to myself, I'm, I believed I was flying into a city that aspired to be European. And when I landed there, and as soon as I walked out of my hotel, I realized that I was wrong. I had landed in a city that already was in very significant ways European, in its aspirations, in its manners, in its, in its, in its philosophical aspirations, and so on. Now, I don't mean to in any way underestimate the complexity of the political situation in Ukraine, of the presence of 
oligarchs and their poisonous impact upon politics, or of the corruption in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, after the Maidan revolution, and I arrived just, uh, just right after, it was uh, the site of the Maidan, as my comrades who were with me will attest, was something we will never forget. Uh, it was not, all of its goals had not, have not yet been met. Uh, but enough of the goals, enough of the liberal democratic goals have been met, clearly because why else would Putin have attacked it? It's important to remember that Putin has been waging this war against liberal democratic Ukraine since 2014. The, the invasion of Ukraine this week is only the latest and most hideous phase of Putin's war against Ukraine and against the ideals that the new that the new Ukraine represents. Uh, so, you know, Ukraine for him is the big prize. If he manages to capture Ukraine, and we can talk about what on earth that would mean, um, but if he succeeds in Ukraine, he will have demonstrated with force the vulnerability of liberal democracy generally, and he will have removed a standing moral threat and strategic threat on his borders. I want to just make sure I'm understanding you correctly. You see, you see the war now as a continuation of the, the same um, aggression and well, in some sense, it begins with the annexation, with the theft of Crimea in 2014. And then the second phase of the war was Donbass, was the, uh, the support of separatists and secessionists in those two provinces, and eventually their recognition as independent political entities. Uh-huh. But, but I just, I just, let's just slow down for a second. Ukraine wanted to join the EU in 2014, and that was what caused, that's what incited Putin's aggression in 2014. What, what scared the daylights out of Putin in 2014 was the Maidan revolution, was the democratic revolution, and the new government was prepared, was about, as I recall, to sign some sort of agreement with the European Union. Not with NATO, with the European Union. They are separate entities, as you know. And in fact, whereas Ukraine dreams of being in NATO, even Zelensky last week indicated that they are not going to lose their country for the sake of NATO membership. But Zelensky this week also signed, uh, it was very moving to see, an application for admission to the EU. Um, this, of course, scared the daylights out of Putin um, uh, because all of a sudden the antithesis of his political system and his strategic adversaries, though God knows they were not violent or aggressive or offensive strategic adversaries, and we can talk about the expansion of NATO in that regard if you want, they were, they were coming close to his border. So the, as I say, he took, he stole Crimea, and then he uh, quasi semi demi hemi invaded uh, eastern Ukraine in Donbas, and then finally last week he declared them, he recognized them 
as uh, independent political entities. He kind of seceded them from Ukraine. That was the second phase of the war. Um, remember, by now, he had dismembered Ukraine twice, once in Crimea and once in the Ukrainian East. And now the, the final blow is his actual invasion of Ukraine. Uh, his actual invasion of Ukraine. Um, it is completely consistent. It is completely consistent with his policies toward Ukraine in the last decade. It is completely consistent with his view of history and his view of Russia's place in the world with his ideological and strategic beliefs. Uh, in that sense, there is absolutely nothing surprising about what has happened now, though the timing of it is worth talking about. And it seems that Europe, that it, you, Ukraine's aspirations to be part of Europe and to conceive of itself as a European entity were, were successful enough that Europe responded to this invasion as a personal attack. Yes, Europe recognized. Yes, Europe recognizes in Ukraine uh, a, a, you know, a, a, a brother country, a sister country. And is that a phenomenon that is, do you, do you have faith in the lasting power of that, of that sentiment? I have to say, that's a very good question, Celeste. I mean, I, uh, God knows Ukraine does not have a long democratic history, and it has very many ugly currents in its history. Uh, and when I went there in 2014, the idea was to, uh, my comrades and I, we, we wanted to uh, support, show the people in the Maidan that we support them and curse Putin in as many languages as we spoke. Um, but the, I was a little skeptical uh, because, uh, partly because Ukrainians were responsible for the murder of my cousins in the forests of western, what is now western Ukraine in Galicia in 1942, and because um, generally, these are, you know, these are difficult processes. So I did come with skepticism. And I left persuaded, genuinely persuaded, that something new was happening in Ukraine. Uh, not that it had erased the old demons, not by any means. Uh, you know, the old demons never get erased. What matters about old demons is how much political power and cultural prestige you confer upon them. Uh, so, for example, here in the United States, in our struggle with racism, anyone who thinks we're going to erase racism is a fool. But the, the point is to politically stymie it and to culturally disgrace it. Uh, and I had a similar feeling about the old demons of Ukraine. And the people that I met who were... Uh, in and around the new parliament, the new government, the Maidan rebels, and so on. Also, leaders of the Jewish community who had been, uh, who were elder people and had seen many, many terrible things, all persuaded me that something genuinely was happening. And again, democracy has to begin sometime. And when democracy begins, it can only begin on the morning after the absence of democracy. There will always, democracy will always have a first day and a first week and a first month and a first year in any democratizing country. And there will be 
spectacular impediments uh, to a new democracy. It is a terribly difficult, a Herculean struggle, and it provokes reactions in the opposite direction, which, by the way, we are also seeing here in the United States in a different way. I didn't, I actually meant the other way. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad for that. I'm glad that you had the response that you did because it was an interesting point to make. But I actually meant, is, is Europe's support of Ukraine going to last? Right now, the entire world is riveted, captivated and excited by um, Zelensky's heroism and just Ukrainian heroism in general. And all of a sudden, um, people are correcting one another's pronunciations about um, the Ukrainian capital. And like that's in, that is a good thing? That's a very good question. That is a very good question. Generally, generally, the problem is that we are living in the middle of the greatest assault on human attention ever devised. Um, our attention is splintered and scattered. Nobody remembers Haiti. Nobody remembers uh, Syria. Nobody remembers Libya. Nobody remembers the Japanese nuclear reactor. You know, we go from crisis to crisis. And every time we do that, Anderson Cooper puts on a new tight T-shirt and goes there and, you know, moves us all. And then we move on. Uh, that's the general problem. Uh, when I heard that Chancellor Schultz last week had agreed to suspend the Nord Stream pipeline, I was astonished. I was very pleased, of course, but I will confess that the thought did occur to me that he was right to do it now because in six months he can turn it back on. Um, and now, I don't mean that to be cynical, even though it is a little cynical. Um, you know, the answer to your question, if you'll pardon the expression, remains to be seen. I think that the invasion of Ukraine has sent a genuine existential shudder through Europe. I think that, uh, and I mean Western Europe, obviously Eastern Europe had, was pre-shuttered in this regard. And the Polish analysis of Russia and Putin has been completely vindicated, as which, you know, there are some of us who thought it was always correct, but has been completely vindicated. And the analysis of the Baltic states about Putin's Russia and Putin has been completely vindicated. Uh, but, you know, we have to, but I, as I say, I think Europe has been terrified. And this comes within the larger strategic context of, I don't want to say the withdrawal of the United States from Europe, because that is an exaggeration. And we can discuss the performance of the Biden administration during this crisis, if you'd like. But it is certainly the case that Europe and other regions and countries and states have learned not to depend on the United States the way they used to, which in my view is a moral, historical and strategic catastrophe, uh, but it is the case. But it is the case. The extraordinary thing about what's happening now is that Putin attacked Ukraine and uh, after, after the, the, the change in American foreign policy, which is, of course, one of the reasons he felt at liberty to do so. Um, but it is happening in an altered strategic climate. But we've already, okay, and granted that 
America, the, that America has on the world stage is a factor, but it is not it is not the primary factor. If Putin has been saying for several decades that this is that this was his intention, and that Ukraine Ukraine is motivated by a sense of European identity. I mean, one of the things that has been so striking the past week, and it's why why we started this conversation talking about your time in Europe, is that Europeans feel this in a way that Americans can't. I, I'm not talking about analysis or they, they have some kind of esoteric knowledge that we don't have, um, but this, this is a European story in the way that it's not an American story. Well, I mean, Americans should start relearning how to feel things that are very far away from themselves to begin with. Secondly, uh, it is certainly true that when one criticizes the withdrawal of the United States from the world stage or its relative withdrawal or its, its modification of its sense of its responsibilities on the world stage, call it what you want, one is not suggesting that everything that every regime and government and country and state in the world does, it does entirely as a reaction to the United States. People have their own reasons for wanting what they want and acting on what they want. However, however, having said that, uh, it, is, it could have been the case that even though Putin has held these beliefs and was looking for an auspicious moment to act on them, it could have been the case that he might not have found such an auspicious moment if the behavior of the United States uh, had been different. For example, we did essentially nothing after Putin took Crimea from Ukraine. Nothing. Uh, if we had responded, if Europe had responded to the annexation or to the theft of Crimea, the way it is now responding to the invasion of Ukraine, the situation may have been different, but we did nothing. Um, during the last, during the period from, uh, since the invasion of Crimea and during the whole period of the slow but steady and violent um, extraction of Donbass from Ukraine by Russia, we have been doing nothing but hold a feckless debate about what kind of weapons to send to Ukraine. And the reluctance of the Obama administration, of course, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration to send lethal weapons to the Ukrainians was a strategic mistake, not because a, a, a stronger Ukrainian military would have marched triumphantly into Moscow, obviously not, but because the, the, it would have raised the costs domestically for Putin on military adventures in Ukraine, and it would have created a different climate thereby for a political solution. There was no reason for Putin to even contemplate a political solution when the costs were minimal or nil. Uh, now he enjoys not only the new American position in the world, let's call it, but he enjoys also something else. Uh, which is the reemergence of what used to be called during the Cold War the Sino-Soviet bloc. Uh, the most important strategic fact 
about this, I mean, global, grand strategic fact about this period, about this invasion, is not just the invasion itself, is the fact that Russia and China are allies now. Russia and China are allies now. This represents a real strategic nightmare for the United States. Did China's response to Russian behavior this time around surprise you? No, not at all. In fact, I was waiting to hear that after Putin went into Ukraine, that the Chinese, after the Olympics, would make some moves in the South China Sea. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, in terms of the global strategy, they together have us a little bit on the mat. But didn't she, con- didn't she condemn the invasion of Ukraine? Xi, in principle, does not like the idea of of countries invading countries, Um, even though if we don't play things carefully, he will one day uh, violate his principle in Taiwan. But but no, Xi has basically, he, he and Putin had that meeting, I think it was during the Olympics, in which it's pretty clear from all the readouts and the reports that Putin was assured that China would not make itself into an obstacle um, at the United Nations or anywhere else to, to Putin's larger strategic intentions. I think he did, he, four days ago, Xi, Xi pressured Putin to negotiate with Ukraine. That's true. Is it just optics? Uh, it's optics. It's, um, it's trying to behave in a statesmanlike way in the world. If I were an American planner or an American strategist, what would keep me up at night right now is the Russian and Chinese entente. That's what would keep me up. There is such a, a relationship now. There is such a relationship. And uh, it bodes ill for many countries, for many countries. Okay, we have discussed the European response and the fact that you have been surprised many times over in the past few days um, by by Europe's... Um, by Europe, yes, but not by Putin. Okay, so that's my question. Ha- has Putin surprised you at all? No. Not at all? No. You, you could have predicted this. I, I, I did. I did. I, I said that there would come a time if Putin found an auspicious moment, if the United States continued to make it seem like it was giving a green light to bad actors all around the world, not rhetorically or diplomatically or whatever, but that it would not ever use military force uh, to, 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 to get in the way of such things, and that it would not ever build up proxies militarily or allies is a better word um, uh, in such circumstances. I wondered if he would ever find the occasion to. No, I was not at all surprised. And those 150,000 troops, which I gather were more like 200,000, that he began to position around Ukraine months ago, they weren't there just for show. They really weren't. So what do you think he's trying to do then? Well, this is an interesting question. What is, what does he think he can accomplish? Um, it's pretty clear that the situation is not evolving as he wished. He can, if he wants, uh, completely lose his mind and behave in Kiev, God forbid, the way he behaved in Grozny, in Chechnya. And he can unleash hell if he wants. But even if he unleashes hell and installs a puppet government, 
There is no way he is going to, quote, pacify, close quote, the Ukrainian population. Uh, it is clear they are not like that. And he is going to wind up with uh, an insurrection that will, uh, of a sort that um, will make the Mujahideen seem not so terrible in retrospect. Um, I don't know what he thinks he intends to do with a captive Ukraine. He could partition the country and allow Western Ukraine to be Ukraine, but the Ukrainians are not going to agree to that. Uh, I don't know. I frankly don't know what he intends to do. Um, you know, he's not going to use nuclear weapons on anybody. That was just him rattling his saber or rattling something else that is longer than it is wide. Um, but it was not a serious threat, though the Ukrainians must be sorely, sorely regretting having given up their nuclear weapons. Um, but I don't really know how this plays out. It could last a very long time. Julia told me, Julia Yaffe told me this morning that she thinks that this might go on for years. Exactly as it is now? Well, we don't, not exactly. Uh, war, resistance, battles, I don't know. You know, there is this terrible, today there is this deeply chilling, ominous spectacle of this 40-mile-long Russian military column slowly wending its way towards Kiev. I mean, it's a terrifying prospect. It's a terrifying prospect. But we'll see how, how crazy he gets. Um, Ukraine is not going to go lightly, and we'll see what the Europeans do. Um, and we'll see... And we'll see if the sanctions, I mean, the, the, will um, actually provoke some resistance to Putin, not just in Russia, in the streets, because that's already happened and he can handle that, but in the corridors of power. Do you think that's possible? I, I, I think anything's possible. See, what do you think that the West is trying to do with those sanctions? The ruble has lost 40% of its value. Uh, we are tanking the Russian economy. The oligarchs can no longer fly directly to Harrods um, or visit their children in various public schools in England or transfer most efficiently to their island in, 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 in the Caribbean. And what is the objective with these sanctions? Is the objective to try and bring Russia to its knees? Is to make Russia hold Putin responsible for the immiseration of their own lives. Do you think he cares? Uh, I think the people around him care, and I think that there are people... Look, palace revolutions have always taken place, and they're always possible. You think it's possible? I, I think anything's possible. I don't know. I'm not a Russia expert. I know that uh, Russia, the Kremlin, still is the world capital of paranoia, uh, the way it was under the Soviet Union. Uh, I think that um, Putin has done something that has deeply disrupted the lives of the most powerful people in his country. Deeply disrupted. Um, and I think, I don't know, but these are, these are reasonable tactics to use. I mean, anything, anything that will put pressure on Putin, either inside the corridors of power 
outside the corridors of power, in the streets, in international fora, uh, in theaters, in uh, wherever, wherever. Anything that can give Russians reasons to want to be rid of this monster is, is worth doing right now. Do you consider the present conditions a new Cold War? Oh, it's not a new Cold War. We've, you know, we had a Cold War going on with Russia for a long time now. In fact, we have had two. We have two Cold Wars on right now in America. And the debate, the debate here has been very peculiar. It's a kind of mantra of the American debate when you discuss Russia, when you discuss China, that we must not have a new Cold War. The sad truth is that we. It's not up to us. If the other side wants to have a Cold War, we have a Cold War, and uh, which is better than a hot war, God knows. But uh, there's no doubt in my mind that we are in the mi- middle of a Cold War with Russia and in the middle of a Cold War with China. And if it makes everybody unhappy to use the word Cold War, uh, then maybe they shouldn't. We'll find another word for it. We'll call it banana. <laughs> what, is it, what is it that people are trying to... Um... What is the scare tactic there? The scare tactic is to, in American political discourse right now, uh, especially in liberal and progressive discourse, but also, no, but also generally, I think, um, the Cold War is remembered as a terrible and unfortunate time in which two deranged nuclear powers almost blew up the world, but luckily didn't. Um, it is not remembered as what it was, which is a, a, a global international rivalry between two nuclear powers uh, and very mighty powers that represented different ways of living and ways of governing, different ideals of life and ideals of politics, in which both sides committed crimes and abuses, I hasten to say that, uh, but which was a valid struggle which the right side won, which the right side won. Uh, Nuclear deterrence worked. Now that for me is half a miracle because nuclear weapons are, um, you know, would actually, they were the original Pandora's box. Um, But a lot of luck was involved, but everybody kept their heads. Everybody kept their heads. Um, but the struggle in Europe and elsewhere between Soviet tyranny and, um, and Western democratic capitalism was a, a, a primary historical struggle. It was not just about rivalrous imperialisms, at least in my view. Uh, people will accuse me of, of being a cold warrior, and I will plead guilty as charged. Uh, you know, cold, and right now we are headed for a world in which there is—it's going to be a world of great power rivalry. Uh, the unipolar moment, so-called, is gone, and we didn't come out of it so well. We didn't exploit it as we should have. By exploit, I mean strengthen our position and the position of our allies and other democracies as we could have. Um, But we are now in not a bipolar, but a tripolar world. And it does not matter that obviously the Chinese challenge is 
secularly, as the economists say, in the very long term, the Chinese challenge is much more threatening, much more substantive, much greater. But the economic weakness of Russia, the fact that it is internally um, structurally incoherent, uh, that's an argument that people use, a kind of economicist argument that doesn't move me very much because for the people living in Russia and for the people being damaged by Russia, the short term can be a very long term indeed. The Soviet Union lasted all of 70 years under the aspect of eternity that is not a very long time. But for the people who lived in the Soviet Union and in, in the Warsaw Pact countries and elsewhere, it was an eternity. It was an eternity. So um, we have to be, as I say, if people don't want to use the, the CW words, they should find another uh, expression for it. But it is time to rehabilitate, you know, the inordinate fear, to paraphrase Jimmy Carter, of the phrase the Cold War uh, should be retired because we need strategic and moral clarity about the nature of the world into which we are moving. We're already in it, but it's the beginning of the next strategic era in world history. We're still at the beginning, and um, we need clarity about it. And by spooking ourselves uh, with, with historical analogies that, frankly, anyway, turned out okay, um, we are going to hobble ourselves intellectually. We really are. We need now in the United States to think once again in terms of grand strategy for a long period of time. We need to recognize the moral differences between political systems and what they mean to people. We need to, we need to connect the strategic analysis to the moral analysis, and we need to stop thinking of, of foreign policy as an exercise mainly in crisis management. We are always reactive to everything in the United States. And then the question is, are we reacting fast enough or too slowly or, or too fast? Or, you know, we're all, even when we're right somehow, we're always playing catch up. And we need, we need to stop that and to think in terms of grand strategy and, 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 and a, 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 a moral view of history, really. And to put those two things, put those two things together. It's a similar. It's a, kind of a similar impulse. People who say we can't enter a new cold war, and people who say, you know, no forever wars, or we don't want to escalate things. But if the person that you don't want to have a war with would like to have a war, then, <laughs> then you have a problem, honey. Then or you have a war, or you surrender the victim of that war to its victimizer. Sure, we can, I mean, you know, we can just say what, what that, that, that asshole J.D. Vance said last week about, you know, he doesn't care what happens in the Ukraine. Fine, fine, it's a position. Um, you know, it's a disgraceful position, but it's a position. But it is very strange. J.D. JD Vance, at least, is, he is consistently awful. A lot of people who are generally the people who say no forever wars, bring everybody home, don't send weapons to Ukraine, are very surprised that Putin would like to carpet bomb Kiev. Yes, I think your point is a very important one. I think that 
it's it's not enough for Putin's invasion of Ukraine to break your heart now. It's not enough to get goose flesh within your admiration of Zelensky now. It is not enough to be moved by this. And then as one as people briefly were moved uh, by Syria or as people briefly were moved by Srebrenica uh, and so on, you need to have a worldview that incorporates the permanent possibility of such events. You have to be intellectually and emotionally prepared for such a world. Uh, because if you're not, you will not have been operationally and practically prepared to play your role in resisting it, but also it will pass. It will be just another media sensation, emotional sensation. It will pass. And so when I hear a lot of good people now um, uh, singing the praises of Zelensky, what I want to say to them is, please understand that if this is how you feel now, then you owe it to Zelensky to develop a worldview according to which the next time this happens, you we will have already supported um, military assistance to a place that's under attack, if you believe it's the right cause. You will have already supported the American defense budget. You have, will have Amer already supported American leadership of such causes and, 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 and support for Ukraine in practical operational terms prior to the, to the entrance of Russian tanks into Ukraine. Um, the, the, these people don't add up. They're good people, but they do not add up. If you want to see, if you want to be able to deter such um, obscenities, and if you want to be able to resist such obscenities, we must become, you must support the kind of America that is materially and ideologically um, already already supporting and resisting. You see, oh, sorry, already deterring and resisting. This is not something we can just work up because we're moved. So, for example, I think the Biden administration's done pretty well, except I think it was a, a disastrous mistake not to, not to arm the Ukrainians earlier. I mean, I was, uh, I was one of those people who was for our, wanting lethal weapons to be sent to the Ukrainians right after uh, Crimea. Uh, again, not because I thought that they could beat the Russians, because there would be it would be easier to find a political solution if the costs on Russia and its military mischief was raised. But um, but you have to you have to be prepared for this, and I mean mentally, I mean mentally, we can't gin it up, we can't gin it up, and the Biden administration was still daydreaming about a Putin Biden summit. Um, while the Russian tanks uh, outside the Ukrainian border were already, you know, were already revving up. Um, you know, diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. I'm not against diplomacy, but if one is going to be for diplomacy, one must also be prepared to recognize the moment at which diplomacy is futile or worse, plays into the hands of the enemy. It makes no sense to believe in diplomacy as an end in itself. 
And it does come a point, if, if there does come a point, when one must be prepared to acknowledge that diplomacy has, has failed or worse is having the opposite of the consequences that we hoped for it. Uh, you know, we can't fetishize it, even though we must learn to be brilliant at it. And these are some of the lessons that I hope we will discuss in the aftermath of this, this Ukraine horror, or should I say of this Russian horror. Thank you, Leah. Uh, thank you, Celeste. Thank you for listening. We do not have anything on our website now about Ukraine, the current crisis in Ukraine, uh, because we are a quarterly. But if you are a subscriber, um, you will have you will have received in the mail, of course, Volume One, Issue Three, which is the the periwinkle issue. Um, or you can head over to our website and access it there. There is an essay included in that issue entitled "Putin's Poisons" by Vladimir Karamorza, which is a, a concise, excellent briefing on who Putin is, what tradition he comes from, and what his intentions are.